You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Wednesday, October 14th, and you're watching The Daily Briefing. Soon, I'll be speaking to our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, how are companies thinking about returning to the office during the coronavirus pandemic? Let's go to Peter Cooper, who's got the story. Peter? Thanks, Jack. Numerous U.S. companies that currently have their employees working remotely and were planning to return to the office in early 2021 have pushed back their plans of reopening their physical office locations further to the summer of 2021. As the pandemic persists throughout the end of the year, the uncertainty surrounding the development of a vaccine and fears how the winter will increase risk of exposure are prompting companies like Google, Uber, Slack, and Airbnb to postpone their return to the office to the summer. Microsoft, Target, and Ford Motors have also announced in the past week of their intent to postpone. The risk of infection is always prevalent in some capacity for people who venture outside of their homes. And investment banks such as JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs last month sent some workers back home after some employees had tested positive for the virus when trying to reinstate some form of in-person work. As such, many businesses are preferring to tread carefully. Not only are businesses delaying the return of in-person work, many are also organizing permanent work-from-home options for their employees. We have mentioned on this show earlier in the year when Facebook and Twitter made these announcements, but Coinbase, Shopify, and now Microsoft has joined them as well. Management across many businesses is finding that the transition to work from home life has made their employees much more efficient and productive workers, which to many has come as a surprise and leaves company executives more open to the idea of implementing remote work as a normal feature of work life even past the pandemic. However, many workers are struggling with the lack of the social element that an office is well-suited for. Slack, as an example, had completed a survey of their staff measuring their satisfaction with remote work. While many reported satisfaction with their work arrangements and work-life balance, Slack employees overall believe there is a lesser sense of belonging in the company, as remote meetings and interactions can only do so much. 11.6% of Slack employees reported wanting to return to full-time office work while 72.2% would prefer a hybrid of in-office and remote work. So while there will be a lot of pain in the coming months for the commercial real estate market as businesses keep postponing their plans to return to the office, the physical office may not yet be dead if the trend veers towards this blend of in-person and remote work in the coming years. And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Jack. Thanks, Peter. Welcome, Ed. How are you doing? Good, Jack Farley in the house. You know, this is time number two for you. I'm really excited to do this. You know, a lot of people gave you props the last time that you uh, were leading the charge here. Yeah, well, uh, it's great to be here. You know, it's funny, Peter mentioned going back to the office. I actually uh, am in the office myself. Um, I have to uh, give Max the Bloomberg terminal, who's got to make a few charts. Um, so, yeah, I'm reporting from the Real Vision New York City headquarters, and I'm uh, glad to be with you. Uh, Ed, what are you looking at in the markets? I feel like there's so much to discuss, but uh, what do you want to start with? Yeah, actually, you know, uh, we were talking a little bit about what we were going to discuss, and I'm thinking banks uh, in particular because we had two or three banks come out today. I think it was Wells, uh, Goldman Sachs, and then we also had uh, B of A. And then yesterday, you talked to Ash. For a long time, I, I saw 
about a city and J.P. Morgan. And I think that it's definitely a tale of the, the K-shaped recovery in certain ways, if, if you will, with J.P. Morgan mostly on the upside uh, of that. I would say that, you know, if you look at, as you were saying in your analysis, uh, net operating income, uh, you know, net interest margins, you have one side, which was yesterday, uh, City, and then today, more B of A and Wells Fargo, which are more dependent upon the consumer and net interest margins. They are not doing as well. But the guys who are more trading oriented, uh, like uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, which isn't completely trading-oriented, or but uh, Goldman Sachs certainly is, I mean, they had much better earnings. And Goldman Sachs today had ridiculously off-the-chart uh, beat of expectations, almost double uh, earnings per share compared to what uh, people expected. Absolutely. I actually uh, went through uh, Goldman's report today, um, and I was trying my hardest not to be impressed, and I just, I just couldn't manage it. Uh, they had the highest return on equity since 2010, year-over-year -year growth in all four reporting segments. That's global markets, investment banking, uh, consumer banking, and asset management. Uh, within global markets, uh, FIC revenues, that's uh, fixed income, currency, commodities, uh, revenues at two, two and a half billion. Uh, that's down from the second quarter when we had a record uh, you know, explosion in bonds because of the Fed. So we've had a little bit of decline in volumes, uh, but it's still up 49% year-over-year compared to 2019 in the third quarter. Um, and also, you know, it's fixed income, credit, and commodities, but it includes mortgages as well. Um, as I, and I, as I was reading today, mortgage-backed securities um, issuance uh, is up over 100% year over year. So you could tie in that residential real estate boom as well. Um, so yeah, there's the net interest uh, margin angle. All uh, five banks, which reported the past five days, reported a compression in uh, the spread between the rate at which they lend and the rate at which they themselves um, are lent to. One thing that struck me, Ed, that I want to get your opinion on is uh, within the investment banking division of Goldman, equity underwriting is at a very robust $850 million, um, because of you know uh, a flurry of IPOs. Debt underwriting is down a bit. But one thing that really is just off the chart, I could barely see it on, on the chart, is corporate lending, which was a mere $35 million. Um, and it, this goes to something that you, know, you and I have been following for a while, which is that companies are beginning to pay down debt. Do you think that that is a good thing or a bad thing for the economy? Well, it's a, it is an interesting thought. I hadn't thought of, about that number. I would say that uh, yeah, we're seeing a certain degree of uh, credit restriction going forward. And the fact that we had all this debt build up uh, before, I think, was as a result of the liquidity crisis. So, you know, people had record cash in their balance sheet, including banks, actually. You know, Goldman Sachs and the big banks, they have a record number of uh, treasuries and cash and cash equivalents on their balance sheet relative to, you know, the last 15 years. So now that the liquidity crisis is over and we have daylight in terms of uh, going forward, I was saying always, you know, look at the September, October timeframe as when you get that daylight, we're seeing people pay down that they say, okay, uh, the worst is over, you know, the, 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 the look forward is not great, but uh, we feel that we can pay down some of this debt uh, and, and, and move forward. Mm. Yeah, Ed, going back to something you said earlier about the K-shaped uh, nature of the recovery, about how they're, you know, the bifurcation between uh, winners and losers, can you tell us a little bit more and go in a little bit greater depth about uh, investment banks versus commercial banks and how the, that those uh, different institutions are being affected by the pandemic. 
Yeah, so I think that, you know, the K-shape, you see it all over the place. Uh, I'm going to talk to you at some point in this about uh, the credit cycle, but uh, you see it in the consumer side, uh, and you see it also within in terms of the investment banks. So I think it's a, a, a sign of the financialization of the economy in terms of uh, supporting asset prices, while, while you know, it's relatively... Uh, weak in terms of what's happened in the real economy. So the banks that are more oriented towards the real economy, towards consumers, they're doing less well than the ones that are, are geared towards uh, the financial economy, like Goldman Sachs. I would expect the same thing to come out of Morgan Stanley when they when they report shortly. And JP Morgan, you know, they are also much more geared towards big, uh, you know, sales and trading, uh, all sorts of mergers and acquisition and corporate lending than, you know, Wells Fargo, Bank of America or Citigroup. So my expectation is, is that Morgan Stanley will will continue in that in that that vein. So we see that bifurcation. The real question is, uh, is it priced in? And, uh, you know, what happens to the to the economy going forward? I think it's definitely priced in. I did see, however, something that said that was interesting that said that J.P. Morgan, uh, the stock trades at 1.5 times tangible book, which is a big premium to Goldman. But when you look at the price earnings ratios, all of the companies that are more leveraged to the financial economy, like Goldman, trade at uh, earnings P.E. ratios that are superior to the other companies. So you have Goldman up here. You have uh, J.P. Morgan below, and then the uh, the price earnings ratio of Citi is uh, much uh, worse than than those two. So I I do think that it's actually priced in, and if you have some sort of reversion from the K, uh, then you're going to see Goldman underperform relative to uh, the likes of uh, of, of J.P. Morgan. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, tell me about that potential reversion. I feel like the past two quarters have been really a once in a lifetime uh, event for uh, fixed income traders and people on, on the equity desk who are uh, meeting the, the needs of these corporations that need financing, as well as that, that system being buoyed by um, the Federal Reserve. Do you think that that thing will last? Because you know already, even though Goldman is, is reporting these record numbers, um, their, their trading uh, uh, pr profits and revenues are down from the last quarter. So already we're seeing a decline. What, what do you think? Do you think this K-shape will last or do you think we will see a reversion as you said earlier? Yeah, I think we're already seeing the reversion. You talked about this maybe, I think it was last week, where you talked about the credit, how 90% of the uh, downgrades were in the triple C space. Uh, so, you know, you see a massive amount of uh, of distress at the lower end of the credit spectrum. Uh, and, and so uh, I think that uh, we're seeing that, that, that pull through. And so eventually, I think that it's going to move up the chain. You know what I would say is is that people, when they're thinking about the markets, and they're thinking about what the markets are signaling, I tend to look at it in terms of the market signaling the real economy as opposed to uh, the political economy. You know, so some people might say that you know the markets are reacting in real time to X Y Z event, 
in, in the political economy or on the, on the ground. I think that the longer wave is really about you know, the economy leading uh, markets and therefore leading the politics. Let me give you an example, because I think I sent you this chart earlier. Um, an example would be some people are talking about uh, that Trump, he uh, came out of uh, the coronavirus uh, problem uh, relatively unscathed. Uh, he went to the hospital, came out three days later. He's back in the campaign trail. Uh, you know, that, that, that could be bullish for the economy. It could be bullish for markets. I, I definitely don't see that. I, I know that Tony Greer, as an example, he was talking about that yesterday. I, I tend to think that, uh, take a look at some of these charts that I, uh, maybe we can put these up onto the, uh, the screen here. If you look at um, over the last, say, uh, 60 years in terms of uh, elections, uh, this chart here, it shows you, you know, the polls in terms of uh, how far you have to go versus the poll in terms of the, the actual outcome of the election. And what you see actually is the difference between Biden and Trump is actually greater than any of these uh, these numbers. So if if Trump were to actually win the election in November, he would it would be the greatest comeback in the history of the United States in post World War II uh, electoral history. So the concept that the markets are trading on a Trump train doesn't wash for me. And it doesn't wash for me in general because I don't believe that the markets are leveraged to the political economy anyway. Um, what I think is happening is that uh, the, the forward-looking uh, part of the, of the economy looks good because of this K. But there is, to a degree, um, a, a fly in the ointment in terms of what I would consider um, a reversion towards a generalized uh, distress. So the K has, you know, one group going up. That's the Goldman's relative to the city groups. That is uh, certain sectors of the economy relative to others. What you need to uh, to and and then what you could see is you could see this group move up towards the other group, or you could see the gap closed by this group moving down. Uh, let me give you an example of how I'm thinking about it in terms of the credit cycle. So the credit cycle, if you look at um, the 2020 defaults by industry, that 70% of the defaults so far in 2020 have been in four places. They've been in consumer products, they've been in oil and gas, they've been in, in retail and restaurants, and then they've been in media and, and entertainment. I think you were already talking about AMC uh, last week. Uh, you know, we know what's going on in oil and gas, and we know what's going on in retail, et cetera. That's where the distress is. Seventy percent of defaults are in that that region. If that number shrinks, then to me, that's a sign that you know this K, the gap is closing with the the companies, the sectors of the economy that are doing relatively well, moving down in that direction toward uh, the K guys. What you really want to see is you want to see the uh, the four the consumer um, products people, the oil and gas, the restaurants and retail, and the media and entertainment moving up. Uh, and, uh, and so that's sort of my forward-looking thinking about uh, where the markets are. They're not there yet. They don't, they're not sussing that out. But I think that's where, where markets uh, are forward-looking, not about uh, uh, the presidential uh, election, but rather how the economy is doing and, and what the credit cycle is saying. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, well, just quickly on the, the K-shape. Um, I think last week I was talking about with Ash that the movie chain um, Cineworld would shut down all of its operations. And it, I think needs uh, still waiting on a 300 to $500 million uh, uh, Debt, debt offering in, in the uh, fixed income markets. Um, but yeah, AMC today, I, I saw um, in the Axios piece you know, we were chatting about, AMC as of October 9th, uh, it's resumed operations in uh, 494 of its 598 theaters, um, but their ticket sales are down 85% on a year over year basis. So these companies it definitely are uh, facing immense hurdles. And by the way, Delta today reported a, a 5.4 billion loss um, for the quarter. But but Ed, let's go back to the credit markets. You've got, uh, in your credit write-downs piece, you've got um, a plurality of charts. I know you mentioned uh, the one about uh, across which industries, but what else are you seeing in the credit markets, both looking back historically as well as uh, looking forward? Yeah, so one chart that I thought was interesting, I, actually there are two charts I had to talk to. Uh, let's first talk to uh, Let's talk about that AMC thing that you were talking about. So here's a chart. Uh, it's the global corporate default summary, and it shows that you know more of the defaults are happening in the U.S. Uh, 6.3%, 12-month trailing uh, junk bond default rate versus say 4.3% in Europe. And I would uh, postulate that that dichotomy. A lot of it has to do with the safety net uh, that is being provided for corporates in. Europe versus the one that is being provided in the United States, which is more porous in the U.S. So, and also uh, to date, the U.S. has performed relatively less well in terms of coronavirus. But going forward, the question is, is what do those numbers look like? Most people are, are prognosticating the numbers rise more prodigiously for the United States and for Europe. I think the, the question is, is who rises more? At this point, people are saying it's the U.S. I would agree with that. And then that gets into the question of, you know, how much of that leaks into the rest of the economy. So with that K closing by these guys staying high and, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, not staying high, but, you know, they're going low and these guys staying low, the, the, the K-shaped part of that. The, the second thing is, is um, I think when you think about the credit cycle, uh, the credit cycle generally leads uh, as opposed to follows. Um, and so I'm looking to see how steep the curve is in terms of the downgrade prospects uh, going forward in the wake of sort of this consolidation phase that we're in right now. So the chart I had showed uh, the credit cycle from 2000 to 2019. And I would point out, uh, I would say, three different parts of this chart. So what you see in the chart is the U.S., Europe, uh, other developed economies in the emerging markets. Focusing on the one line, the U.S., which is the light blue line, what you'll notice is, is, is that the light blue line slopes upward uh, starting in 2000 when the recession began in March of 2001. So the credit cycle, the downgrades actually already started to happen in a very aggressive way. The next time you saw that up, upward slope being aggressive, it was really aggressive, and that was in 2007. Uh, and that also predated the, two, the December 2007 uh, uh, top of the market. That's when uh, the recession uh, happened, December 2007. Then the third thing that I would point out is in, in 2014, when the shale oil bust happened, you saw an upward slope to the downgrades that was about on par with the upward slope that you saw in 2000. And so on some level, you could have expected a potential recession there. 
but it was very localized uh, in oil and gas, and it never metastasized out to the rest of the economy. Now, uh, we don't we don't see this line because it's uh, it, this this chart that I was looking at cuts off at 2019. I see a similar sort of effect in the sense that we have a, a massively up upsloping line, and that that line is is predominantly uh, within those four segments that I talked about. To the degree that you see it metastasize into other parts of the economy, then we would get a, a double dip recession, uh, as opposed to uh, you know the recovery that we're now in continuing on. Yeah, that's a it's a really uh, interesting chart. Um, at first, I thought that on the y-axis was was credit spreads, but it's actually the the prospect of of a default. Um, speaking of cre credit spreads, um, Tyler uh, Neville, my, my credit uh, arch nemesis, he like clockwork today. He he uh, texted me um, a chart of high yield spreads uh, at their lowest that that they've been since February. And he said, uh, the, from the Farley camp, crickets. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so Ed, what can you please empower me uh, with an argument so I can uh, go, back to, go back to Tyler and have something to say? You know, credit spreads, as Tyler says, are at record lows. And if they are a leading indicator, uh, doesn't, that, uh, doesn't that suggest that we have a, a, a boom uh, for at least uh, several more months? I wouldn't say several more months, but definitely uh, at least a few. So I think that the you know the markets are basically telling you it's all clear. There's nothing on the on the horizon in the immediate future that says you know distress has metastasized in in a way that imperils the economy. But uh, if those numbers start to go up, you know we're talking credit spreads, we're talking uh, downgrades. Uh, we're talking about the K uh, moving so that it, it goes outside of the 70% being in those four sectors. All of those things are, are signs that there's leakage into the rest of the economy. So if you take a look at the dichotomy between 2000, 2007, and 2014, the big difference in 2014 was it was, it was localized in one particular area. Uh, if it becomes unlocalized in this particular uh, juncture, then we should see it be reflected in credit spreads more generally. And we should also see other uh, indications that uh, you know things are starting to, uh, to hot up. So I still see it as a canary in the coal mine. And, and by the way, in terms of you know, my, my call that this is a, a potential double dip, I did mention uh, when I was writing about it today that you know, the NBER, when they called the February 2020 peak, they said that the committee concluded that the subsequent drop in activity had been so great and so widely diffused throughout the economy that even if it proved to be quite brief, the downturn should be classified as a recession. You can take that same logic and then you could apply it to the recovery. You know, the, the V-shape that we saw uh, to uh, the level that we had uh, recently is enough so that we could say that we're definitely in recovery and anything that happens now is another recession. And that other recession has to be of the same ilk that the NBER was talking about. They were saying that so great and so widely diffused, and we're not there yet. So uh, I would go back to Tyler and basically say that, you know, we're not there yet, but it is a mean reverting series. Uh, we're at the low. You could almost say that it's almost a contrary <laughs> indicator in that uh, it, it's just waiting to to, to percolate up. But a, a, as we speak, th there's no sign that that's happening. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think if you look at the, the chart of credit spreads, just at the simple chart, it's very hard um, to see stress and it's just not there. I think if you look a little bit beyond the surface um, into some of the more illiquid assets, you start to see a few cracks in the system. Um, for example, I was just looking through the Bank of America's report today and their uh, percentage of non, they have uh, percentage of non-performing loans is at 0.48%. That's up from 0.44% um, last quarter and 0.36% um, in the third quarter of 2019. So that ticks up. Commercial uh, reservable uh, criticized utilized exposure, which is a very long-term phrase for basically sour loans, um, that's ticking up as well for 6.6% has been deemed uh, to be a little bit spotty by the FDIC. Um, that, that's significant as well. I want to uh, end, Ed, by talking about uh, Jamie Dimon's comments. Oh, uh, yeah, that's where I wanted to go, too. Yes. We're on the same page. Um, tell me, Ed, because I, I read uh, the report and I went through the numbers, but I really haven't seen his commentary. Um, so what, what did Jamie Dimon say and why is it significant? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, so I mean, when you were talking about, I think you were talking about B of A and you went through their stuff and you saw upticks and so forth. If you looked through the numbers at JP Morgan, their loan loss uh, provisioning was less than people expected. They, they pre preserved less, uh, you know, provisioned less this quarter and their numbers were off the charts good relative to expectations. But interestingly, Jamie Dimon, you know, when he got on the call, he said, this is a, a direct quote, he said, compared to the first quarter, our reserve build now assumes a more protracted downturn as we prepare and reserve for something worse than our base case. So basically what he's saying is, yes, uh, we had a recession, and yes, uh, we had less uh, loan loss provisioning now because we're in a recovery. We just exited the V-shaped part of the recovery, but we're now entering into a less steep upturn, and you don't know if that's going to roll over. We're thinking that... Uh, you know, this is a more protracted event. And when he says protracted downturn, he actually means a depression. He's not talking about a recession because at some point in his commentary, he talks about a double dip. Uh, and so those two are very distinct. He's saying recession one, you know, upturn, and then a double dip into the second, all part of one longer depression-like experience. So that's a sort of, I would call, a worst-case scenario because he always talks about his fortress balance sheet. He's really you know, preparing them for the potential for downside risk. The second thing he said that I thought um, he, he said was, quote, you will see the effect of this recession. Uh, you're just not going to see it right away because of all the stimulus. And so what he was basically saying is that the only reason that we saw such a V-shape is, is because the stimulus was so huge. Uh, this gets back to what David uh, Rosenberg has been saying for a long time. The stimulus was actually bigger than the lost revenue. So, uh, you know, we were able to continue that holding pattern by and large because people were made whole. A lot of people were made whole or made more than whole. But that stimulus is now uh, rolling off. Uh, I heard uh, rumors about the Republicans, you know, setting the stage for uh, uh, fiscal austerity going forward. 
you know, one of the reasons that they're not down with the Democrats right now under Trump is because they 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 actually think that Trump's going to lose. This is a, a report that's coming out of Bloomberg. The Republicans in the Senate think that Trump is going to lose, and so they're not going to give away on 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 uh, you know expanding the deficit now, uh, knowing that if they hold the line now, they can say legitimately in January, February, if Biden were to become the president, look, you know, we already started. Like we've had enough of all these deficits. We said this under Trump. That's why we didn't go for it in, in October, November. And we're not going to go for it with you, Joe Biden. So that's sort of where things are potentially headed going forward. That makes the outlook a little bit murkier. Uh, it's not in the numbers as we see it. The market is still pricing in uh, you know, a good forward pattern. But there are some risks out there. And Jamie Dimon was pointing them out. Yeah, uh, Ed, that, that's really interesting. We only have a few minutes left, but I, I just want to quickly zoom in on the fiscal stimulus, because so often you know, I, I read articles about the, the fiscal stimulus, and it's so rare that I actually feel like I learned something new um, fr from reading it. But you know, you've, you've been following this story. It seems like a consensus is forming that a significant stimulus bill uh, will likely not be passed before November 3rd. My first question for you is, do you agree with that? And my second question for you is, uh, we've been reading that uh, since August that the uh, $600 a month unemployment assistance being turned off would negatively impact markets, yet it hasn't really happened. Uh, when, if ever, do you think a, a shoe will drop on that? Yeah, so uh, here's what I think is uh, being priced in now uh, to the degree that there's any uh, pricing in from a political perspective. Uh, I think what's being priced in is that, uh, yes, there's no stimulus now, but uh, the stimulus roll-off won't be so aggressive as to create uh, some sort of recession, double dip, and that when uh, 2021 comes around, whoever's in office, and likely it's going to be Biden, uh, given the numbers that we've seen, there's going to be stimulus at that point in time. Uh, the, the caveat there, I would say, uh, you know, there are multiple caveats. Number one, in terms of where the positioning is now. Trump, he wants to be reelected, so he's going for stimulus. He's already said 1.8 trillion. Uh, the House has said we want stimulus too, and we actually want more than you do because we think that we've understimulated. We want three trillion. Uh, the Senate, which is the, the Republicans, they're only looking for a small bill. They're they're trying to position themselves for we're not going to go for deficit spending anymore. This is crap. Because if Biden wins, and we think that he will, given the polls, we want to position ourselves for uh, you know making that call. If we hold the Senate in uh, in 2000 in the election in, in November, then we can uh, we can make uh, it painful for Biden when he becomes a president. So that that is uh, the the fly in the ointment for 2021. Were Biden to become the the, the president, the uh, and the second point is that it's really all about uh, um, output. Uh, one thing that David Rosenberg has talked about is uh, what he calls inventory restocking. So really, what we're seeing is inventories got incredibly low, and now uh, we're, we're now restocking those inventories. It's just like we saw in, in China in the beginning of their uh, uh, recovery. So it's not really that consumption is the all-consuming aspect, uh, no pun intended. Right, it's, right. 
it's really that GDP is a uh, is a production number. Uh, it's uh, you know production product. That's what they're measuring. And so if you uh, produce more, if you increase inventory, so to speak, uh, then you can still have uh, you can still have a, a higher GDP number. So it hasn't shown up in GDP. Uh, the real question is, are we going to see the follow through on the consumer? Uh, and I think that we're going to have that question answered uh, somewhere towards the end of the year and the beginning of next year when all of these decisions about uh, holiday spending and also fiscal stimulus get made. And we have a fiscal cliff that's happening on December the 31st uh, to, to boot. So uh, to be to be continued, basically. Yeah, to be continued. Uh, there's so much more to discuss, uh, but we'll have to end it there. Ed, thank you so much uh, for your time today. I, I really enjoyed our conversation, and I, I hope uh, the Real Vision members do as well. Yeah, Jack, great great to talk to you as, as host. Uh, great second go-round. Oh, thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.